Thanks for checking out this message from River Valley Church in Boise, Idaho. We hope that it encourages you and inspires you. For more messages like this, make sure to check out our podcast. And for more content from River Valley, go to our website, rivervalleyboise.com. Enjoy this message. Uh, we are going to jump in here today, like I said, to 1 Peter chapter 1 and uh, give you a little bit of context and then we're going to jump right in. One of the cool things, though, that I love about 1 Peter as we dig into this book and as we look at a people of hope is the idea of uh, the author. I really like thinking about the fact that the guy who wrote this book, that if you have not picked up on yet, is full of doctrine, it's full of theology, it's full of eschatology, which is things about the end times. It is this extremely rich book that you read and you expect something like this from Paul who was very educated, very learned, had one of the most incredible educators ever. You expect something like this, but then you look at who the author is. It's Peter. Big mouth, loud mouth, rebuking of Jesus, denying of Jesus, turning his back on Jesus, Peter. Now, I think we could probably all relate to him in one way or another. We all have areas that I think we are very, very similar to Peter in how we relate and how we live. But what I find so beautiful about 1 Peter and 2 Peter is that God took an average, everyday, messed up, full of pride person and used him to write one of the most incredible books to encourage people who needed some hope. And that gives me hope, and that should give you hope, because God wants to use you to also be someone who brings hope to other people. We didn't call this series a person of hope. We called it a people of hope, and the reason for it is that God uses us as individuals to strengthen each other, to encourage one another, and to help us remember the hope that we have. And so I love the fact that Peter was the guy who wrote this book, who is just like any one of us, and we're going to find here in a little bit uh, just just how messed up uh, Peter was, but he was still such a great guy. We, we have to look and see uh, how, uh, who the book was written to gives us context. And obviously in the first uh, verse, it says that Peter, an apostle of Christ, to those who are the elect exiles in dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Yeah, I got through that. Okay, so he's writing to who? He's writing to exiles. He's writing to people, the Christians, who have been spread all over the place and were living as foreigners in the lands where they were living. Why is this important to us? Because you and I are also that same person. We are living as foreigners in the world that we are right now. This is not our final destination. This isn't our resting place. And sometimes it's so easy to look around and go, hallelujah, that this is not our final destination. But how many of you also know that so many times it can be really hard to live in the world, but not be of the world? It's so easy that as we are living as foreigners in this world to adopt the mentality, to adopt the way of thinking, to adopt everything that this world has to offer. And before long, what happens is that we look for hope in the things that the world looks for hope in rather than the things that Peter is going to tell us that we need to fix our hope on. 
And so these people were exiled just like we are also foreigners in the land that is not ours. It gives us an accurate perspective of what we need to keep in mind. It gives us the God perspective of what we need to keep in mind. And this truth should really change the way that we think. Because it's, it's, it's a thought between temporal and eternal. And this is one of the things that Peter is going to deal with. It's a theme that he's going to deal with all throughout the book. Is this, this war that rages between us who are foreigners living in a str- as strangers in a land. To not adopt the mentality of this world that is a temporal mentality. But to adopt an eternal mindset uh, pointed towards heaven and all the promises that's there. It's really easy for us to lose hope. It's really easy for us to live in a hopeless sense because we live in a hopeless world. The same things that we find hope in, health and wealth and, and, and uh, advancement in work and all of these different things and uh, amassing all these different things that people find hope in also become the things that dash our hope because when we don't have those things, we end up in a hopeless place. And so for us, we need to understand what the mentality is as we look at Peter and why he was writing this for us. Yeah, and the people that he was writing to, there's a little word right before exiles, and it's the elect. And I just wanted to to say really quickly that elect word is the, the people that are set apart for Christ. And so they are chosen by God. And verse 2 gives us a little more clarity about that. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his, with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And that's a lot of words, but there's a lot of doctrine actually right there in that that teaches us what kind of people we are. We are chosen by the Father. God himself chose us before he even sent Christ. He chose us. So we are chosen. We are cleansed by the, uh, by the son. So by Jesus, by the sprinkling of his blood, our consciences are, are cleansed. Our sins are forgiven. And then we are sanctified by the spirit. So we actually find out that we serve a God right in this second verse who is three in one. He, he is the father. He's the son and the Holy Spirit. And it, I think that just going over that before we move on is really important because Peter found it important to include it right here. This big piece of doctrine that we believe in a three-in-one God, that we are chosen, we are cleansed, and we are sanctified all by our God. And so we are born again. Um, actually, verses three through five say this. They say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And these verses contrast a yet and not yet salvation. We are born again to a living hope through Jesus' resurrection, right? So we, when we ask the Lord to forgive our sins, we confess with our mouth that we believe that he is the son of God, and we become born again now. It's a now thing. Um, and we were talking with Jason's dad about this and trying to get our, make sure our theology was in line because there's a lot of a lot of theology in that verse right there. <laughs> um, it's a little intimidating. But we were talking with him, and he gave us two words. There's inauguration, the salvation that comes now. So when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, um, 
it inaugurated a salvation that comes now. As soon as a person says, um, Lord, I confess that you are my Lord. I want you to rule my life. I want you to forgive my sins. That's the inauguration. It's introduced at the resurrection of Jesus, and that process is put into play. Um, and now we can step in line for that full benefit now. We step in line. We can receive that salvation now, be born again. But there's a not yet piece of it. And we see that in, the, in verse 4. It says uh, that we have an inheritance. So that means that there's something that isn't ours yet. It, it is in Christ. We're in line for it. We are set up for it. And the, the word that, that Jason's father gave us is consummation. There's a completion that comes upon Christ's return. And so that actually gives us um, hope. That is where our hope comes from, is that this isn't the final thing. That our salvation that we have now, the born again that we have now, that we have to work out in the flesh, is a, is a now salvation, but we're working it out. But there is a not yet component that is our inheritance. It's a coming thing complete salvation from sin, where our bodies of death, our, all of our sins, all of the, the things that we think that are wrong, that are not holy, that are not set apart to him, all that stuff is taken care of when Christ returns, when he comes back to, to get all of the saints and retrieve them. That is the consummation of our faith. And when that happens, all of our sin is fully done, fully taken care of. Jesus has already paid for it, and we've received the down payment with the Holy Spirit, right? He lives inside of us, and then the consummation comes later. It's a not yet. So the point of all this is Peter begins the whole book by saying, listen, you are a people of hope. And why? What is your hope in? The salvation of your soul. And the salvation of your soul has a now work in your life and a future work that will be completed at the time that Christ returns. So Peter says, before you look at anything else in the middle of suffering, in the middle of trials, in the middle of pain, I want you to remember your hope is in the fact that you are saved and that Christ has paid the price for your sins. And, and, and this is what's really cool about this as you go on is is by faith we receive this inheritance, the inheritance being our salvation. But here's what's really neat. And this is what I find so amazing about putting our hope into hopeless things that will fail us versus putting our hope in something that will last. Because in this, it says back in verse 4, an inheritance that is imperishable. It cannot perish. It cannot go away. Your salvation, the salvation that Jesus paid the price for on the cross is permanent. Nothing can take it, aw nothing can take it away. It's undefiled. In our minds, how many times do we mess stuff up by the way we think or the way we process or, well, if I do enough right things, then I earn my salvation, right? We, we get into this kind of thinking that's warped, but the idea is that our salvation is undefiled. It's pure. Another thing is it's unfading. Your salvation doesn't fade over time. It's as powerful now today as the day that you ask Christ into your heart. It's kept in heaven. The world can't touch your salvation. Nothing here in this place, no sin, no, no lie of the enemy, no entrapment of the enemy, no struggle that you find yourself in will ever keep you from the salvation. And... It is guarded by, get this, God's own power. 
God's very power is preserving your salvation. And it will be revealed to us in the last day. So this, what this does is this takes our hearts and says, okay, despite what happens in the middle of everything that happens, even in the trial, even in the testing, even in the pain, even in the confusion, even in the middle of all the things that happen, my salvation remains untouched because it is salvation in Christ. This is hope. This was what gives us our hope as we face forward. And this is why Peter starts this whole thing. But the key is that we have to have faith. Faith that this salvation is, this inheritance is all the things that Peter said that it is. And really that God says that it is. We have to have faith. There's a, the pocket lexicon of Greek New Testament defines faith as this. It says it's faith, belief, trust, genuinely of the leaning of the entire human personality upon God or the Messiah in absolute trust and confidence in his power, wisdom, and goodness. There was a, there was a Bible study that we looked through that Ellie actually did on 1 Peter, and they had this really cool wording, and this helps us with our faith. It says that this faith, our faith, is measured not by our feeble attempts to trust him. How many of you ever find yourself feebly trusting God? I've, I, I, I know what the Bible says, but getting my heart to actually believe that is a totally different thing, right? But our faith is measured not by our feeble attempts, but by the trustworthiness of the one who we place our faith in. Again, it's not about us. It's about the salvation that God secured for us through Christ Jesus. And he will bring to a completion at the end of time. And our faith is in the fact that he is who he says he is. And he will do what he says he'll do. Right. That is awesome. I think. Thank you. <laughs> it was on the notes. It, it wasn't. Um, okay. So. What's amazing? <laughs> Sorry, sometimes it's really hard to do this with him. <laughs> um, no, I love doing this. Um, so the faith we have, <laughs> the faith that we have and the hope, where we put our hope, that faith gets tested because we live in the world. And verses 6 through 9 say this. And I know I'm reading all the scripture. I don't know how that happened. I got all the chunks of scripture. You're good at read. it. Um, but I'm going to read 6 to 9 to you, and I want you to just listen um, to what Peter says. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So we can see that testing reveals the genuineness of our faith. As we get tested through various trials, which James says will come, it says, consider it all joy, my brothers, whenever you encounter various trials. He doesn't even say... Maybe if that happens to you, he says, whenever, like as though that's a normal part of life. So we should accept that trials, testing, things that come against us, that's a normal part of our life. And we can count it 
all joy. Um, we can have joy in suffering because we know there is a greater outcome. It's not based in what happens here, this side of heaven. It's not, it, our hope is not anchored in the outcome or the miracle that takes place here. It's actually anchored in the miracle that takes place when Jesus returns and all of this is taken care of. There's going to be pain. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be difficulties that come against us here. Things that go away that we don't think they should, that we wrestle with in our faith. And we have to say, God, I don't understand. That is okay to say, God, I don't understand. It is hard for me. I want the miracle. I wanted the miracle and it never happened. That is okay for us to wrestle with him about. However, we turn in joy to him and we say, but I still trust you. I still know that you're good because the word, the word of God says that he considered it better what was to come. He can, he knows, he gets it. He gets that this is painful here, but he considered it better what was to come and he considered it worth it. And that was something that I had to wrestle through in my own faith um, a lot actually as a, as a new believer. And Romans um, 5, 1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into the grace in which we stand in the hope of the glory of God. Our hope is in the glory of God at the resurrection and, and when Jesus comes back. Our hope is in that. That's what we boast in. That's what we put all of our, our faith into is that Jesus will return and he's coming back for us, a people of hope, a people who have put all our eggs in one basket, really. Like we're throwing it all in. It's all in his basket right here. And it says, this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Our hope will not disappoint us. Our hope set and anchored on Jesus Christ returning and coming back for us and giving us our full salvation, that hope, it won't disappoint us. We can, be rest, we can rest assured that regardless of what happens this side of heaven, God is still good. He still has our good in mind. He is taking care of us. He is walking with us through every trial. And it says that the testing of our faith will produce endurance in us, that we can run a good race, that we can do this well. So we should lean in. When it gets tough and all those things start coming against us, we should lean into the Holy Spirit, lean into the Lord, put all of our trust in him and begin to cry out to him because he is the anchor of our soul. And so... Um, I think I'm done now. Yep. I was looking to make sure. Sorry. I'm still new at this. There's uh, there. So again, we were, we were talking to my dad about this and, and he said something that I, I just love this quote. He said, today can stink, but it doesn't infect our inheritance. Okay. And I just, I just like that. It doesn't affect our inheritance, right? Like it, it can stink. It can be bad. And in fact, the Christians that Peter was writing to were actually facing intense persecution, on a daily basis, they were, they were kicked out of their homes, they were exiled, they were scattered all over the place, and their, t their faith was tested on a daily basis. In other words, and this is really important for us as believers, in other words, trials were a part of following Christ. It wasn't like something weird and crazy happened to them. No, because they were followers of Christ, trials were going to come. Now, for you and me, because we follow Christ, trials will come. 
we, we can't have faith that God won't allow us to go through things. Our, our faith cannot be superficial enough that we say, God, keep me from all pain. Keep me from all trials. Keep me from all struggles. I, I don't want to go through any of that. That's not what our faith is for. Our faith is when it is tested. Our faith is what keeps us strong through the testing. And, and Peter is writing about this, and he's encouraging these people uh, because of what they're going through. Um, so the focus of our faith is to help us endure trials. You know, it's really interesting that in verses 5, 7, and 13, Peter refers to the revelation of Christ in the last days. So essentially what he's saying is, listen, the focal point that makes this all work is to keep your eyes on the end. Keep your eyes on the prize. And this is what he was encouraging. In the middle of everything that happens, in the middle of all the stuff happening, keep your eyes on the prize. Now, here is where we come in. Because God uses us to help us keep our eyes on the prize. It's really hard to do this life of faith and this life of, of doing everything that God says to do and to, to have faith in the hope that's to come if you're in the middle of a trial without those gathered around you to help you through it. You weren't supposed to be isolated and just trying to figure it out on your own. No, God gave us each other so that we're able to walk through these things and say, hey, listen, I know it's bad, but remember the hope that we have. Remember that our God is still good. And remember that in the end, he wins. And so we have to remember that. And that's what we get to do as a community here of believers. We can cling to verse 5 that says that God protects us for salvation. Not only is our hope in the fact that we have salvation in the end, but God also is protecting us with the end in mind. Yes, he's protecting us for, day, for our day-to-day, -day and he'll walk through these trials with us and everything. But he's saying, listen, the reason I'm doing that is for the preservation of your soul for what's to come. So he has the end in mind as well, too. Does he care about our day-to-day? -day? Absolutely. But does he care more about the end uh, of, of our lives and the culmination of salvation? Absolutely, 100% more. And so Peter's encouraging us to keep track of that. Now, in the Old Testament, in Hebrews 11, it talks about this. Abraham was someone who the Bible says he lived as a stranger in the land. Just as the exiles that Peter was writing to were strangers, so was Abraham. But this is what Hebrews 11 says about Abraham. By faith, there it is, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And we see in Abraham that he lived with this mindset that this was not it. Now, there's a really, really fine line between a couple of important things. In this life, we are absolutely called to steward what God has given us. Looking forward to the end and keeping that in mind doesn't mean we just go willy-nilly and forget about everything today because it could all be gone and all we care about is the salvation of our souls. No, God has called you to steward what he's given you. Husbands and wives, he's called you to steward your marriage. Parents, he's called you to steward your kids. All of us, he's called us to steward the finances and the blessings that he has given to us. 
but we can't be attached to them. There's a really fine line, and it's possible to do both. It is so possible to steward and care for and nurture what God's given us, but by the same token, not be attached to it to where if it wasn't there, it would crumble us. We have to have all of these things in place. Imperfection, trials, and testing in this life are a reminder that this isn't our final destination. Just rest in this promise. Everything here will always be less than what's to come. As good as it gets here, it's nothing to compare with what's to come. Everything is inferior here on earth. That's something for us to remember. We might be living our best life. It's inferior to what's to come. And so for us, we need to make sure that we keep that in mind. Now, a natural byproduct of strong faith, like Ellie was saying and reading in the scripture, is glory and honor and praise to Christ Jesus. So we can use that to evaluate our life. Does our trust in God bring praise and glory to Christ? Because it should. And that's the evidence of that that's in us. Yeah, and in verse 7, uh, just to finish that out, it says that our, our faith might be tested by fire, though it is tested by fire, not might be, though it is tested by fire. Um, and I looked that up in one of my Bibles that tells the history and origins of all of these things, and I found it really interesting that they used to have these uh, ores of precious metal, primarily gold, that they would melt in this huge fire fiery furnace, and it would separate out the uh, kind of the crud from the gold. And so the gold would be refined by this heat. And so what, what Peter is saying right here, and all of those Jewish people that he was writing to, and even Gentiles, would know about those fiery furnaces. We now have jewelers, so we don't watch them do this. Um, <laughs> but they used to know what that would mean. And we also are put in a fire. We are essentially put in a fire And what that does is it cleanses our faith. It purifies it and it makes it whole and good and full. And so we can can walk through these fiery things knowing that our faith is going to be purified. It's going to be, it's going to come out on the other side in such a great way. And our faith will be increased, it will grow, and it will produce good things. So we're going to move on to verses 10 through 12, which are uh, the next set of verses. And it says, concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. And basically what this is talking about is that God sent prophets. He sent people and gave them a, a foreknowledge of Christ and his resurrection. They were, they, they sent, he sent people. And so, and then that got fulfilled. And so now we can look to the future with the future prophecies and believe in hope that God is going to do what he said he's going to do, that he's going to send Jesus back. He already fulfilled those prophecies that 
Christ would come and would suffer and that then would be raised to glory. That happened. And so now, because we've watched that happen, we can believe that he is going to be faithful to do that again, that he's going to send Christ back to us. And so then it says, therefore, therefore, prepare your mind for action. Be self-controlled. Put your hope completely in the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former desires you used to conform to in your ignorance. And one of the questions we always ask is, what's the therefore, therefore? And that therefore is referencing the hope right before. So those verses before that talk about how our inheritance is coming, about how God has not failed. He sent his son to die on the cross for us. Our hope is anchored there. So therefore, therefore, we should prepare our minds for action. We should prepare ourselves that this is not the end. What is going to take place? That that is where we're headed. We see our life as temporary. That's preparing our mind. We see it as temporary. We live with self-control. So we set up things in our life to make sure that we're living a self-controlled life. We're not just living for our own pleasure. We're living for, to please the Lord out of faith. And we live uh, with hope completely in the grace of Jesus that will be revealed to us on that last day. And uh, we accomplish these things in community, right? So Jason's already mentioned this, but we want to keep coming back to it. It's not a person of hope. It's a people of hope. We do these things in community. We encourage one another to take action, to step out in faith. And that's what we're doing right here, right? We're saying, hey, come on, let's, let's be a people of hope. Let's go out and give people hope. There's something to live for. There's something else besides just building our own little lives right here on earth. There's something more that we can live for. And so that's why we are a people of hope. The last, the last, one of, uh, the last thing that's mentioned in that, in that chunk of verses there is that we obey as children of God. And we found some, some, some really cool things here and the connection between faith and obedience because this is one of the things that I think as believers, sometimes we can get out of order. We lean so much on the obedient side of things. If I just do these things, then I'm good. But it's not led by faith. So what happens is the doing becomes empty because we're just trying to ultimately earn our salvation, which is called religion. But there's a really cool connection between this because you have faith and obedience. These are actually words that live in tension. They need each other. You can't have obedience without faith, and you can't have faith without obedience. They have to function together, and there is a very specific order in which they have to run together. And according to James 2, it says that uh, when it talks about Abraham, that obedience was a result of his faith. It was a result of his faith. So in our lives, when we look at the things that God has asked us to do, we first have to check our heart and say, where is my relationship with God at? Where is my faith and trust in God at that then will lead me and motivate me to be able to obey? If I simply go out in the morning and I just say, well, today I'm just going to do all the right stuff. I'm going to say all the right stuff. I'm going to love every person that I see. I'm going to be the perfect husband and the perfect father and all of everything that's in there. We're going to fail. Why? Because we don't have faith in God who's helping us and propelling us through these things. 
Now, just like faith and obedience, and this, this is really cool. I want you to just catch this. Faith and obedience are connected. So are disobedience and, and disbelief. And actually, this is how they're connected. This is really cool. This is Bible nerd stuff. In Romans 11, verses 30 and 32, they actually use the same Greek word. Disbelief and disobedience. It's the same Greek word, which is apatheia. And it's the same thing, which means that if you have disbelief in your heart, it's equal to disobeying. If you disobey, it's the same as not having faith. You can't separate these two. But how many times do we as believers, it's so, it's so much easier to just say, if I live this way, then that's what I need to do. And God's saying, no, 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 no. I want you to live a certain way because your heart is for me and you have faith in what's to come and faith in that hope of what's to come. So because of that, then, if you're struggling with faith, well, it's time to push in and obey because your obedience will increase your faith. If you are struggling with obedience, obeying what God has said to do, well, it's time to spend some time with Jesus. It's time to refocus your faith, like Peter's saying, and the, make the focal point of your faith the salvation that's going to come at the return of Christ. But these two things have to work together. Now, the next verse, and we're going to kind of keep going here, 15 and 16, verses 15 and 16 says this, but as he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, I read that and I go, perfection, right? Like, I got I to gotta, I gotta be perfect. God is perfect, so I got to do that too. And it becomes really weighty and actually impossible, right? Because you look at it and you're like, you got to be kidding me. How am I supposed to be perfect? The Greek definition, again, going back to here, is not perfection. The Greek definition is set apart, the holiness here is a holiness of being set apart. Peter's saying this, listen, because of your faith in the hope that's to come, I want you to be set apart, which means you think different. You act different. There's a way that the world says to function, and there's a way that the kingdom says to function. And you get to choose which one of those you are going to be a part of. God is set apart. His holiness separates him from all sin and from all temporalness. It separates him. And his desire is for us to also be separated unto himself. Now, just as we, we kind of wrap it up here, verses 17 through 21, I won't read them all for time's sake. But I love this because, again, going back to Peter, Peter was able to write these words because he had experienced these very things. I want you to think about this. In verses 17 to 21, he was able, he knew what it meant for the father when it says that the father shows no favorites in whom he will save. Peter knew what it was to be a nobody that God decided to save. Why? Because he wanted to. Because he had a plan for Peter's life. He also knew what it was like to live in fear of man versus fear of God, to trade a holy reverence for God with a fear of man, a fear of man that ultimately led him to deny Christ, to betray Christ and turn his back on him. And he also knew then, and this is, this is just, you read these verses and it's just like, I imagine Peter kind of having a remembrance day 
because of that, he also was like, yeah, I lived in fear of man. And that led me to tell a little 12-year-old girl that I didn't know who Jesus was and betray him and turn my back on him. And he also knew what it was like to be ransomed, redeemed by the blood of Christ. That after the resurrection, Jesus came and he called him again and said, Peter, I'm going to wash over that and I'm going to forgive that. And I'm going to set you back in the place of forgiveness as my son. And I have a purpose for your life. Peter knew what all of this was like. And so he was able to write it from a knowledge that God is not a partial God, that he judges impartially with us, that he loves us and redeems us from every sin, everything that we will ever do, ever think about doing, there is a salvation that comes. And so Peter knew this firsthand, just the beauty, the beauty of this hope that comes from the person of Jesus Christ. He walked every day with Jesus, right? For three years, he walked with Jesus. In the flesh, we're not walking with Jesus, but we have the Holy Spirit that guides us and connects our heart with God on a daily basis. So because of that, he then goes on to say, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And so his encouragement after all of this is, hey, love one another. Treat one another with such love and reverence that it's different. It's set apart. So our hope, we are a people of hope that love one another well. And so I think as, as we go out today, I think it's really important that we consider how can we love one another well in this body, in, in this people? How can we show one another a deep, brotherly love um, and love one another earnestly. I think that that's such a good word. It's earnest. It's not kind of hanging back, waiting for someone else to love us first, but it's actually leaning in with an earnest love, a desire to show the love of Christ to one another and encourage one another in this hope. Um, and the last first uh, section there, it's like a, the last couple of verses. It says, all people are like grass and all their glory like the flower of the fields. The grass withers and the flowers fall but the word of the Lord remains forever. And Peter here is quoting Isaiah 40, verses six through eight. And he is saying, all this stuff withers and falls and fades, but the word of the Lord is sure. We can set all our hope on it. Just like we've been talking about this whole sermon, the word of the Lord, that Jesus is returning for us who will be sanctified, who will be um, brought into full glory. He will return and we can set all our hope on that. And we don't have to worry because it says that we are like grass. We will wither and fall. <laughs> and I think about how our grass dies every winter here in Idaho. And I'm like, wow, okay. Yeah, it dies pretty quickly. It's pretty rapid, right? Our life is fleeting. And so we can anchor everything we have into that hope of his word. What he said he would do, he will do. And it is a sure foundation to build our life upon. And so um, here he also, he contrasts our perishability with, our, with the imperishability of God's word. We are perishable, but God's word is not. And so we can build our, our, our lives on that unperishable, not fading, unfading thing that he has given us. So what's, what's all the point of everything we said as we conclude? Peter's saying, listen, I want you to be a people filled with hope. And I also want your hope to be grounded in the right place. 
And so Peter's saying at the very beginning of all this, I'm going to set the tone for this entire book that says your hope, the hope that you have as a people following Christ is in the salvation of the Lord Jesus. And that is where he starts for us to be able to get to that point. And, and, and this is also beautiful because this is the journey that we go on, right? For us, the beginning of our life of hope begins at the point of salvation. It begins at the moment where we make a decision to believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And we begin to go on this journey of experiencing the hope that we have in the salvation to come. Thanks again for listening to this message. Do you know someone who'd be blessed by it? Make sure to share it with them this week.